Today's program has been brought to you by Calavita. Think outside the bottle with Calavita, America's trusted family brand, makers of extra virgin olive oil and fine Italian food products. Calavita.com. I'm Erica Wides, host of Let's Get Real, the cooking show about finding, preparing, and eating food. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome to Food Talk. Michael Meco here. Great to be back. Great to be here in the studio. Man, I'm watching people. One thing about this radio station is it's not really a radio station, is it? It's kind of an internet radio station thing in the back of Roberta's in a shipping container, which adds to the quaintness. And we're in Bushwick, which is like the hipster capital of planet Earth, I think, at this point. Um, but we have a big window, so we get to watch the dining room. And this dining room that I'm looking at, in a couple of weeks, they're going to put a wood stove in the middle. And that's going to be the heat for the building, which is pretty funny. But I'm watching this couple, and they're, they're doing something. They're eating pizza with a knife and fork, man. And I saw somebody yesterday. I was at, do you know the um, Speedy Romeo? Oh, Speedy yes. Romeo. Over at Lower East Side in Brooklyn. It's a great spot. Oh, completely wood-fired kitchen. They have no gas. And their pizza is great. And I, we were, he had been filming in, in Williamsburg, and I biked to, the, I biked to Williamsburg for, for the shoot all day long. And I kind of wanted to come home and watch the debate last night, because I don't know. I'm just feeling like... Political. That's what, what I did. Whatever. So the guys wanted to hang out and have drinks after the shoot, and I'm like, you know what? I want to bike home. I'm going to grab a pizza at Speedy, and I'm going to watch the debate. I'll take a shower, and I'll, I really want to see this thing live. So I'm at Speedy, and while I'm waiting, you know, the chef comes out and he's talking. He hooks me up with some wings and some other stuff, and I'm watching. And there's this like big table of kids, and they're eating pizza with like a knife and fork, and I'm like, God, <laughs> no, pick that shit up. <laughs> anyway, my guest today is Jenny Lefcourt, who is. Half of, but no longer half of. Now it's she's all of Jenny and Francois. Um, so Jenny and Francois is a wine importer. Oh yeah, I should warn everybody. Sorry, sorry, sorry. This whole hour is going to be about wine today. The whole hour. Jenny left course here for the first half hour, and Aurelio Montes is here from Chile to talk about his wines, um, which are pretty amazing. Pretty amazing story down there, but. Jenny's thing has been since the beginning, since day one, a long time ago. We'll, 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 get, we'll get her story from her. Um, to have a portfolio initially of just French, but all natural wines. And, th- and we're going back. What year did you launch? Yes, indeed. Well, thanks for having me, Mike. First no, of all, it's a pleasure. I'm, so I'm a big, big fan of your portfolio. I love Roberta's. I love you. I'm thanks so much. to be thanks on so the radio. My daughter pointed at the radio this morning. She said, you're going to be on that? <laughs> I said, well, maybe well, that. Well, actually that. Pointed the to the Mac. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> What's the radio? That's so analog. No, you don't want that. We a, wake up to the radio. Yeah, I listen to NPR and I listen to some other couple of stations. But radio is, it's sad that radio has gone the, the way of the, the horse-drawn carriage for the most part. Yeah. It's full of vitriol and... Nonsense. But anyway, pleasure to have you. So what year did you launch the company? So uh, we started the company in 2000. Whoa, whoa, 16 16 years years ago. Was there anybody doing (laughs) natural wines exclusively then? I mean, Dresner was leaning that way. So Dresner was leaning that way, and Dresner has never called it natural wine. Right, correct. real wine. Well... 
um, which but, is a great word as well. Right, and but kudos to them because they've really. I mean, he's he always R.I.P. He always had a great palate. He was driven. I mean, that's what he would say to me was, you know, I, I never went out seeking these things. It's right. just when I found a producer that I liked and I liked their wine, it often turned out, oh, so you're an actual winemaker. That's uh. That's our same story, and it's interesting because there's now, you know, newbies or not so newbies anymore. But there's a lot of um, people doing what we do now, bringing in all natural wine portfolios, and it's interesting hearing to everyone tell the same story. And I'm sure it was interesting to, to. Um, Dresner hearing me talk as if I had discovered this <laughs> wonderful world that he had been working in already for 10, 15 years, something like that before we started. Um, and Kermit was kind of and in the periphery. I mean, Kermit was very influential in terms of the in the early days um, at Beaujolais. Absolutely. Actually, um, Phil Sarrell, who works in our, our company, who's a great part of my team these days um, and has just brought in a bunch of Austrian wines for us. He is uh, the one um, claim to fame to put, have put Marcel Lapierre, mm-hmm. uh, a bottle of Marcel Lapierre in front of Kermit and said, try this. Well, that was the, that was an so, aha fucking moment. Yeah. <laughs> I would have loved to have been there for that. <laughs> so now, that was really kind of the beginning there. And it's funny you mentioned Austria because I think what you're having an event coming up um, at Contra. But I think it's funny because when I think of Austria, I almost think the other way. It's like kind of emblematic of very modern winemaking in terms of technically modern winemaking. Exactly. I'm I'm a wine geek in terms of drinking wines that give me pleasure, and I've always stuck, for many years I stuck to France and stuck 100% to France and have branched out, you know... um, when I realized Tony Cattori needed representation in New York City, I thought, okay, this is going to completely redefine what we do. Are we ready for it? <laughs> and that was our first sort of leap outside of France. But um, Austrian wines, you know, there's, I mean, I still have tons and tons to learn. But it was really going to specific bottles that, that made me say, okay, actually, yes, our company is ready for this because they're doing incredible, interesting things, and this is the forefront of the natural wine movement. So what was it like? So you're, it's the year's 2000. You're going out on a limit. You were in the wine business before. You were working for another company. You were, at, you were on the floor. At Ch- I was not in the wine business at all. I was doing a Ph.D. in French film and literature at oh. Harvard University. Oh, God, you're one of them. Place in Boston. <laughs> <laughs> Holy shit. Well, that's fantastic and so, great. And we could talk film and cinema sometime exactly. and really bore down. I wrote a 450-page dissertation on French, early French film. How cool. And while I was in Paris... Um, I always liked... What's the guy? Oh, well, maybe Jean Gabin. <laughs> I always liked him. He was in those Renoir movies. Uh, I always liked that guy's face. Oh, he was heartthrob, yes. Yeah, wasn't he cool? But he was like, like, like the French Bogart or the exactly. French... That sort of not, your, not a handsome... Some guy per se, but there was something about him, like a salt of the earth like human a, being. Rustic, like a natural wine. <laughs> yeah, I always saw Jean Gabin. It's funny. I like a bromance. Well, I guess I didn't know him, so it can't be a bromance. But that, that's my kind of guy. I like that kind of guy. <laughs> anyway, so we're not talking about French cinema. So, so you come out of that, and now you need a job. So, yeah, then I needed a job. I was finishing up my dissertation. There was one job available in French literature and film in Minnesota, and I thought, 
that job is the most desirable job and I actually don't want it. I want to stay in Paris or New York or Burgundy or the Loire or somewhere like that. And I had begun to taste and discover wines um, in restaurants, wine bars in Paris. I had begun to go to wine tastings and talk to winemakers. Wine so this is funny. So you're in your early 20s already, mm-hmm. and you're not really a wine person yet, but you're just kind of being drawn in from the periphery. Exactly. It's, was, you know, that's like Pascaline's story. You know that, right? It is. Like, I knew she was a philosoph- She was a philosophy. You grew up in the Loire Valley, so you'd assume, oh, but no. You know, I mean, yeah, they drank wine in the house, but it was not something they talked about. It wasn't like something right. that draw. And she's, she was a great academic. She was, I think, postgraduate philosophy. And then got into wine in her early yes, 20s. That's right. Pascal in the Pelletier. I met her when she was living in Paris, already working for Rouge Tomat. And we had a lot in common. Oh, that's so cool. Because we both came from academic backgrounds and non non <laughs> Right. Although she grew up in the Loire, so she had a, yes. <laughs> a foot in it. And she has made up for it. Boy, if I see one more hashtag yes. from Pascaline, Shannon, Shannon, Shannon. <laughs> they, and she tortures me. Now that Luge is open, and every night we get our Facebook feed yes. of her choice selection of eight or nine bottles right of the down night. to Rouge Tomate and R- yes. glass of yes. Chenin Blanc. Um, so I was living in Paris, drinking wine studying and watching films and I thought how can I make this life go on this is the life that I love I'm loving it and so I figured it out and I brought some bottles of wines I had tried to New York I said are these here these are not here and I started looking around New York for all these wines that I was drinking in France and I didn't see them anywhere so one day I had gone to a natural wine tasting. At the time, nobody used the word natural. But we were starting to ask questions. How come this wine tastes so delicious? Why is it so different? Why is the aromatic palate so open? Why does it taste different at the end of the meal, from the beginning of the meal, and just give us so much pleasure and speak to us like a person who we're getting to know? What is this? And the more questions we asked, the more we realized that the, the wines we loved were all made the same way. That is, they were organically grown grapes. Right, so we're talking about proper farming practices. So this is not this is not big agra. This is not fertilizer. This is not spraying chemicals. This is not copper everywhere. This is learning how to farm naturally. So the soil is healthy. The vines themselves are healthy. Healthy soil, healthy grapes, well balanced grapes. Because the truth is, once you start stop adding all those chemicals to the soil, you have a better balanced grape. It's shown now that there's more acidity in a grape. So actually, it leads to better quality wine because acidity is a backbone of wine. It make, what makes it be able to age. And so we were going around saying, talking to winemakers and asking more and more questions. And all of them said, yes, well, I grow grapes organically, but then in the cellar, I also use nothing. I don't buy yeast. I don't add too much sulfur, I don't filter, I don't use new wood, I don't add tartaric acid. Just non-interventionist is another term that we hear. Yes. Um, But I didn't go and say, oh, I'm going to start an organic uh, wine importing company. I just went and said, wow, who are these incredible farmers who are, you know, um, making these gorgeous wines that give me so much pleasure, and why aren't they in 
the U.S. And I should just stop you for a second because I never know who's listening, and I figure you know all seven of you. The um, <laughs> you know we do a lot of we get a, we get a lot of psalms on this show. We get winemakers on the show. Um, we talk a lot about wine on this show. But it, it occurred to me like somewhere eight or nine years ago when I began to drink a lot more natural wines that I began to think, holy shit! I've been like when I go to a wine store somewhere in America that it maybe doesn't have natural wines. Ninety nine percent of what I have on the shelf is the following. It's factory farming, so you have no soil health. Um, we're not, I, I don't even go into like irrigation and yields, but you could be looking at overcropped vines. Um, it's, it's really, it's like factory farming anything. So then they pick those grapes, which are probably mechanically harvested, so there's no selection there. They kill whatever, if there were any yeast, that they're inoculated. And then they're buying from a catalog that's out there of thousands of types of yeast. Oh, what kind of Sauvignon Blanc would you like? Exactly. Would you like this? Would you like that? And they're, so they're using a yeast that's an, an external yeast. And there's dozens of other things. We can chaptalize. We can remove acid. We can use gum arabic. If, if it's too t- and there's a million dirty tricks in winemaking that get done all the time. And then, did we get into sulfur yet? No. And then you have these bottles of stuff that's being sold as wine that's really kind of gross. It's uh, grape products. It's <laughs> yeah, basically, totally. I mean, you can add coloring. Drinks, drinks made with a base of grape, grapes. Right, grape juice that but turned into this because we can do that with our bag of tricks. It's a scandal, and it's a scandal that's not talked about as much as it should be. Michael Pollan is the advocate in terms of food, pointing out what is going on with the food industry and uncovering the woes of um, industrial agriculture and agribusiness. And in the wine world, the problem is that there's a lot of money put into advertising for big wine companies. And these small farmers who are making the best wines around and not polluting the earth and making pleasurable wines and who care about the final taste and the health and pleasure of their customers, they don't have money to advertise for themselves. Um, So that's, I mean, that's where we come in. We're trying to talk about what they do. But it is really the only um, food or drink that doesn't list additives. And there are so many. And it's not just, I mean, you can can put, before it becomes wine, you could get that grape juice and put it through reverse osmosis, separate it into solids and liquids. You can add alcohol, you can de-alcohol. I mean, you could, honestly, they could just make shit. And there's so many, and like you said, you don't have to add the additives. I mean, you know, there's... 200 permissible additives in winemaking. Colorants, color removals, acid that you can add acid that you can t- I mean it's like I when you bore down when you read more about it you talk to winemakers it's crazy it's crazy and uh, you know wineries are big huge polluters too yeah they're huge polluters it's the biggest polluters in France for example and you know people think oh the beautiful vineyards most pictures of vineyards I see I think are like the ugliest things I've ever seen looks like Mars it's with like these twigs sticking out of them it's complete monoculture there's no there's nothing it's true and I, I think probably the worst of it because I'm old enough to remember like going to Bordeaux in the 70s and walking or I think that was probably you know I think the in the 
I think the French were making natural wines, and so were the Italians. And so I think for most of the history of wine making, yes. they were making natural wines. Yes. Uh, we don't know when sulfur started to be added, but it was, it was somewhere in the last century. Oak wasn't really used really until after World War II. I mean, I had always assumed that going back for centuries, the Bordelais had these yeah. barriques and they toasted. No, 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 no. So oak, so... Nobody could afford new oak no one, barrels. Correct, correct. So, and sulfur was created by chemical companies after World War One. Correct. But, you know, then that was modified and changed and concentrated. And fertilizer was a lot of that was coming out of petroleum producing. So the French, and, well, I mean, most of Europe was making natural wines for ever until after World War Two, and then even then they were the everyone was so beat up and broke that, but. As money began to fall into their coffers in the 60s and the 70s, that sort of became like the worst era for winemaking because then they could afford everything. Then they could buy pesticides and fertilizers and all the junk that you needed post-crush to create things. Yeah. I mean, it's not, a, not necessarily an easy life living in the countryside in France in the 60s and 70s. Yeah. And, you know, so chemical sales people came along and said, you know, this is going to make your life easier. Right. Here's some Roundup. Like, why? Right. You don't want to be pulling your weeds or using a horse to plow. Right. And so... And know, the truth was, it, it, you know, here, too, in America, the food scene in our country... I'm not talking about wine yet, but, like, the food scene in America was horrible. Like, I lived through that. Like, right. it, like <laughs> after... Like, my, the, before World War II, there was, there was, like, butchers and bakers and stuff, and people cooked, and then it got to be, like, the 60s in the era of, like, NASA and, and, and Mrs. Kennedy, Jackie Kennedy, loved TV dinners. It was like... And women didn't want to do this shit anymore. So Open it's like... a can. You don't oh, have to cook dinner. I remember literally, like, half of my friends growing up, like, we drank Tang instead of orange juice, because John... Glenn had it on the <laughs> Apollo mission. So instead of squeezing oranges, you were getting this powdered liquid, a powder, pouring water into it, stirring it. I mean, holy right. fuck, that's where we were too. Yeah. I mean, so it's like the whole world kind of crashed down culinarily and wine-wise. And maybe the 70s was like the darkest era, <laughs> late 60s and 70s. Trust me. Exactly. I, I was there. So, all right. <laughs> so that's what you got. So that's what got you into it. And it's so funny you and Pascaline go back that far. Um, where do you stand? So sulfur, SO2 is a really interesting thing. Yes. So it's used, uh, it's used in a couple of places for a couple of reasons in winemaking. Um, it can be used to stop fermentation when you decide you're done. Introduce SO2, it's finished. So, And me, then at bottling. Yeah. Bottling for stability. Um, traditionally, it's uh, in some dosages, depending on how many mils per liter or parts per mil per liter, um, it's used for bottling to stabilize the wines historically. Yeah. But it can also be super abused. And, and a lot of people are using none. So talk about SO2. Me, I mean, when people um, talk about natural wine, SO2 seems to be the buzzword and the yeah. topic that comes up that's under the most debate. But the basic thing is people are not using chemicals in the vines on the earth. So they're not polluting. They're making organically grown grapes. So that's really important. Then they get to the cellar and what do they do? And there are, you know, more industrial type organic vineyards, bigger vineyards that will then get those grapes to the cellar and put sulfur on the grapes to kill off whatever bacteria and yeast are present. And then they choose their lab yeast which could have a certain taste uh, or be more neutral. Um, but you're not going to consider that point, natural. Right. This is the point at which... Uh, I mean, if it's not using natural yeast, idea, it's not, to me, if it's not natural, if it's not native yeast, it's not natural wine. Exactly. A, that's number so one. This is the first definition right. of natural wine. So they get to the cellar with their organically grown grapes or biodynamically grown grapes, and they're going to make wine. 
And so for those who are using indigenous yeast, the yeast that's there, you, you can see it with your eyes right. on the skin of the grape that is from the vineyard, right. from the place. Right. From the vintage. Right. So if you're a believer in terroir, you can't get more terroir specific than that's, that's the yeast from my ground that's, that's really specific to this spot. That's where the story is going right. to come from. Right. That yeast right. is going to talk to us in the bottle. Right. So that's going to make the fermentation happen. That's going to make the specificity of this wine. Because so if you come in and you add a lab yeast that tastes like, you know... Bananas. Bananas. <laughs> bananas <laughs> is the most... You know, Beaujolais Nouveau, everyone Thank says, oh, it tastes like bananas. It's because everyone uses the, the same, same yeast. yeast. Yep. So when like you all of George DeBose's wines taste the same, actually. The same. It's not even just as Nouveau. Every one of them tastes the same. I don't care what he calls them. It's like yeah. banana, banana, banana one, banana two, banana three. If you taste a good Beaujolais that's made with indigenous yeah. yeast next to that, it's completely different, much more complex. There'll be that cherry that's there or the fruit that's there yeah. because it's a young wine because it's made from a Gamay grape. But it won't always be this one thing of bananas. <laughs> so you have a natural wine. It's made with indigenous yeast. Then, so sulfur. Um, there's a lot of sulfur that is permissible in winemaking. And the way sulfur is used is the harvest comes in. Most winemakers put sulfur directly on the grapes. They kill off the yeast. They kill off the bacteria. And as the fermentation goes along, they need to add more because it combines with the wine as it's fermenting. And it disappears, and it won't protect the wine from oxygen right. anymore, which is what it's for. It's to protect against right. bacteria. It's to protect against um, oxygen. That's the fight of winemaking, is protecting you know not too much oxygen, not too little oxygen. Um, so you have to add more and more and more to protect the wine as it goes along, and then more before bottling to protect it while it's in the bottle. And you can end up with 200 milligrams per liter. Which is with- pretty astonishing, because like most of what I'm drinking, if uh, some of what I'm drinking has none, depending on the producer. And then like most of what I'm drinking, when I pull out the spec sheets, like if I'm drinking, if I'm going to Alsace and I'm drinking just my air, or I'm drinking Umbrecht, you know, they would love in a perfect world not to use any sulfur, but they kind of want to be certain that if they're producing 50,000 cases a year and they're shipping 15 to 20 to America, that that wine's going to, 12 bottles will be identical in each case, and each case will be like the case that came right. before and after it. Well, but, Christian, but we're talking like 10, 12, 14. Christian Binaire, who we work with in Alsace, most of the time uses no sulfur whatsoever. Mm. He makes beautiful, beautiful wines. Once in a while, he'll put a, you know, a, a crown cap on something and say, this is a sparkling wine, <laughs> because that's the way the wine went, and it's delicious. As long as it's called frizzante, everyone's happy. Um, but so sulfur, um, so you don't need 200 milligrams. Right. You know? So if you're using indigenous yeast, you can't do that. So you can put a little before bottling. That will protect it as much and as... Give me a little as in like 8, 10, 12, up to what... Up to 20. Right. That's what I, that seems you to know. be what... So Isabel tr- same thing. When that's, that's it. Okay. The truth is that that's the same amount of free sulfur that you'll have in a 200 milligram total sulfur bottle. So, because all the rest of the sulfur has combined in the techno one that, you know, so they're both protected equally. And there's also actually sulfur that's naturally there. Yeah. Yeah. And so the wine could be protected with adding nothing. You know, it, the winemaker knows if 
his or her wine is already protected. It's gone through everything it's going to go through. It's been exposed to oxygen. Nothing more is going to happen. They can safely bottle it. It's a healthy, beautiful, well-made, balanced wine and bottle it with no sulfur, and it will be fine. Other wines might need a little bit. You know, that's up to the winemaker. Right. It depend, could be depending on the year. could be depending on the weather at the time. Because there's all of these variables. Because if there was some rot. Right. If there was, right. you know, and they select, you know, all our winemakers will go through and get all that rot out and do careful selection of grapes to be able to make natural wine. I mean, that's why the wines end up so good is because they're so, so careful because they want to be as natural as they can. So they don't want it add sulfur if they can help it, but many will add before bottling a little bit, but 20 is not the same thing as 200 and, you know the truth is in the 200 milligram sulfur bottle, you know you also have the added lab yeasts and many other things probably and so the end result is going to be completely different. Yeah, it is and I, I, before we were, you know we we were talking before the mic went live and I was saying that, so I kind of because of Friends like Alice Firing, and because I met Pascaline at the Old Rouge Tomat and, and know a lot of songs, you know, I began to sort of put my toe in the natural wine world. Oh, maybe after you, probably oh four or five oh six is more like it for me. And it was kind of hit or miss. Um, you know, when they, the early days of Ten Bells, I'd go, and I remember the guy that the guy the guy that used to own it that was behind the bar, and you know, he'd be pouring me stuff, and I'm like, what the fr-? you know, it's just. Brett's flying off. I have no idea what varietal I'm drinking. You know, we're decanting it an hour later. It's still Brett City. And, and sometimes the wines were mousy, and sometimes they were vinegar, and sometimes it was... And I'm like, what? I don't... But, but talk about the... Because it's a relatively new thing, how the winemaking has gotten better. Because now my palate... I mean, now I'm really drawn to seeking out natural wines all the time because I just find that there is a vivacity to them. There's just, they're, they're, it's a living organism. Yeah. And that bottle will change with from glass to glass, from the first part of the glass to the second part of the glass. It'll change over the course of hours. Sometimes if I don't finish them over the course of day, it, just, it keeps moving and it, it's like having a conversation. This thing is alive for a lot of reasons. There's, if it's not fined and filtered, there's still lees in there. There's still yeast left over. I mean, it's a living thing. It's a living thing. And the point of that living thing is pleasure. So, right. I mean, whether, however a wine is made, if it doesn't give us pleasure, then there's no, right. <laughs> there's no the point? point. What's the point? To me, I, I never was particularly interested in wine until I got to France and somebody put what I, what I now know as natural wine in front of me. And I tasted it and I said, what? What? Is know, why thing? is this right. so alive? Why is this so delicious? It's, it's funny. like it has acidity, but it has fruit, but it has right. you know some kind of and something, an energy to it. There's a tension in there that's herbaceousness or yeah. salinity or whatever it it's is. It's funny. I was talking to Isabel Legeron, who's going to have. So we should talk about a shout out. There's this big natural wine fair coming up called Raw, first one ever in America, right? Yes. In in it's going to be in Brooklyn, in Bushwick, the Jefferson Stop, some venue. I don't know. It looks like an auto body shop. I don't know. It's it, this is Bushwick, man. <laughs> <laughs> but it's two days. It's November 6th and 7th. Yes. Um, tickets are available. It's going to be amazing. If you don't know Isabelle Legeron, you Google her, L-E-G-R-O-N. She's a master of wine, French by birth. British where is where she, Britain is where she lives now. She has a great book out on natural wine. And I was talking to her at Rouge Tomate a couple of weeks ago. Um, 
and I was talking about you know we, the same conversation we were having, and she had this great description of it. This is but um, I was talking about like like the old style of I mean it, what happened like like what Bordeaux was doing in the sixties and seventies and and maybe into the eighties. But and she said you know it's really th- with sulfur and with all of that chemical for. It was the wines. Were, it was like mummified wine, and <laughs> that's that, a, good that, way that's a great, And I thought that's such a good way yeah. to put it. So it's like Excellent. let's embalm, let's preserve this thing as much as we can, so it stays the same. That's how I always feel. I, I'm like something is blocking me from enjoying this. I can't get to the wine. The wine is like behind something. Yeah, and then that word when she used mummification, that's I'm like, great. actually, that's a great way to put it because yeah. the light goes on your head because that's sort of that's like these wines are alive and these wines are decaying really. <laughs> Slowly. <laughs> yeah. So, Tim, so what's going on in America now with natural wine? What's happening in this country? I'm going to have an hour with Tony Couture, which I'm terrified about because I'm going to be great. in a room with people that know He's... more about wine than I do. Oh, that's and fantastic. Tony's Tony's this character, but so what's happened? Because Tony was like this crazy, like hippie ex San Francisco. He's been doing this since like day one in the '70s. Yeah, in I Sonoma. feel so lucky to represent him here in New York. Um, well, he's been at it forever. I mean, what's interesting is when we started out. Um, we worked with wineries from many regions in France. So there'd be Marc Pinot in the Loire or um, Magali Terrier in Corbière. I mean, now Tony Couture in California. And people felt isolated and alone. And they said, what am I doing in my region? Everyone's, you know, at least like uh, in Muscadet, everyone's machine harvesting. You know, they really want to have as much crop as they can. And they're making wine in a totally different way for me. Here I am by myself. And then uh, there started to be these fairs, uh, Dive Boutet in France. Mm-hmm. And we had, you know, started with our Natural Winemaker Week um, in New York and um, brought a lot of winemakers together who had never spent so much time with other winemakers who were like minded. And so a lot of exchange of information how do you make wine? What do you do? What do you do if you have this problem and that problem? Everyone started talking to each other. And there were more and more fairs all over France, um, now all over Europe, and now in New York. Yeah, it's going to um, be great. So this is this is November 6th and 7th. It's the RAW. It's the Raw Wine Festival or something like that. Go, Google it on the Internet. Um, Isabella Journal is the brains behind it. There's some great panel discussions. I mean, Pascaline will be there with Alice Firing talking about terroir, which is they're working on something about it. Trust me, there's a, there's a book in this. Um, they're, they're just, there's a bunch of great panels, a bunch of great psalms, and, and, and all of the wines are going to be natural wines. So you're going to be drinking natural wines, meeting the winemakers. It's just going to be a great two-day experience. Um, thanks for coming in. But we could have burned up an hour easily. Wow. <laughs> Thank you for <laughs> Jenny, having Jenny me. Lefcourt has been my guest. Uh, is she's, if, uh, when you're looking for wines in a store, spin the bottles around. If you see Jenny and Francois is the importer, that's her. Buy the bottle. No questions asked. It's going to be killer. It's going to be natural. It's going to be delicious. It will bring you pleasure. Um, stay tuned. I've got Aurelio Montes coming on next to talk about what's going on with his amazing winery down in Chile. And this next two minutes will just be some people that help bring this show possible every season and also some of the other shows here at Heritage. So stay tuned for more Wine Talk right after this. Music for this commercial break is brought to you by Teeth People, and this track is called Greenwood Cemetery. (laughs) 
Hey folks, Mike Kalameko here. Everybody knows that great cooking really starts with great ingredients, and these days we have so many options to choose from. Well, I go back to the Cola Vida family brand for years, and there really is a Cola Vida family behind this brand. I got their story long after I started using their products. Back in the mid-80s, when I was the chef at the Ritz-Carlton here in New York City, one of the things you can do as a chef is order your own food. You do the purchasing, and we switched olive oils to Cola Vida. Uh, when I had my own restaurant down in Cape May, New Jersey, the Globe, for years, that's all we ever poured at the table. That's all I ever cooked with. And then when I started my PBS show in 1999, I thought, you know, if I'm going to look after underwriting and funders, why don't I go after products that I, I actually use at home, that I actually cook for my family with and in my restaurant with. I've been working with them for 15 years with the PBS series and now with Heritage Radio. The Cola Vita family goes back generations in Italy. They make their olive oil from great sourced olives, traceable sourced olives, just south of Rome in Molise province, Abruzzi, which is where my family hails from. Since then, their family's moved here, so there's Colavita is living in Rome. Colavita is living in America. It's a great, trusted family brand. It's the olive oil I use, and I recommend you try it as well. So, when you think of the great wine regions of the world historically, I mean, you're, you're going to be led back to Bordeaux, Burgundy, Champagne. Okay, maybe Piedmont, Italy too. And as a chef growing up, boy, if you were working in great restaurants in the '70s and '80s, they were mostly all French, and we grew up drinking Bordeaux and Burgundy and Champagne with impunity. Well, fast forward to today, and I just, just got back from the 2015 Bordeaux Harvest. We were there for a week with a bunch of sommeliers. It was so much fun, and I'll tell you, this isn't your grandfather's Bordeaux. There's a whole new generation of young vignerons working with this great terroir that they've lived on, this soil that they know that they've grown up with, and the great varietals that we all know and love, Cabernet Sauvignon, Merlot, Cab Franc, Petit Verdot, Malbec. You know, this, this style of Bordeaux now that's younger, that's fresher, that's meant to be consumed now and not cellared because honestly which of us has a cellar and who wants to buy a bottle of wine and wait 10 years so the Bordeaux whites are amazing uh, you know Sauvignon Blanc and Semillon like hello two grapes that we know the reds are all sorts of different stories from the left bank style that are a little more Cabernet Sauvignon driven a little more structured right bank a little more Merlot a little easier um, a little more upfront friendly but if you haven't thought about drinking Bordeaux wine, give it another shot. For 15 to $35 in that price range, which is my price range, there's tremendous value in there. So if you're walking past a Bordeaux wine, stop, grab a great bottle. These are some of the most food-friendly wines on planet Earth. of this week's show. Um, I should tell you, next week's going to be a fun show. Next week, I've got... It's, gonna, it's a pre-tape. I'm not going to be here. I'm out of, out, of, out of the town all week. But next week's show, I've got an hour with Virgilio Martinez, who is the chef-owner of Restaurant Central in Lima, Peru. He was in town a few weeks ago. Um, we filmed at his restaurant years back. Well, a year and a half ago. I had a great lunch there. I was really impressed with this dude. Um, super talented guy. Lima is a really interesting food town these days, um, thanks to the Peruvian economy sort of coming back and... You know, a middle class that's there again. But if you don't know Virgilio, Google him. He's a really talented guy, really stoked about what he does. And I don't think there's a Michelin guide for that country. But And I'm not so big on guides anyway. I don't really care too much. But, you know, the chefs love it. I think his restaurant's ranked third or fourth in the Pellegrino list of best restaurants in the world. So... And he's a young dude. So anyway, in studio today, live with me, is, is Rio Montes, who owns a great winery in Chile, um, founded in 1988. 
Great backstory, which I want to get to in 10 seconds. Right now, you're 650,000 cases of wine. You guys are big. We became big. Uh, you became Michael. big. We so, became big, yeah. W- but you studied agronomy. So you, you went, I mean, how did you get into wine? What was the story? Because it wasn't like you grew up in vineyards. Not at all. My father was in, in insurance business, actually. Right. So I studied uh, agronomy in the Catholic University. And within, you know, the career, you have to choose where to go, fruits, cattle, or whatever. And I decided to go to wine because I thought it was something so appealing, so uh, you need so much passion to go to it. And there were not, not too many you know, students uh, much interested in that. So I, I, I was saying, well, I want to be different. I want to do something else that everyone is doing. So I decided enology. And there I am. You know, God took me by the hand to the most unexplored right. and unexpected places. Yeah? Right. Destiny tapped you on the shoulder, as is often the case. Absolutely. In life. It's Absolutely. We plan, we plan, we plan. Like, <laughs> it's funny. I've got kids, so it's kind of it's like chaos theory because you kind of do your best with your kids. But then you realize you look back at your own life and say, you know, when you met your wife, remember how that happened? Or when you got that career change, remember how that happened? Remember that phone call? Remember that day in the elevator? That guy said, aren't you? the?" And it's like. That was bingo. That was it's crazy. Absolutely. So what was it? So this was the seventies. What was the Chilean wine scene like? What was viticulture? What was happening down there? Well, I honestly don't know. Yeah. Well, actually, uh, we have been you know, in viticulture since the Spaniards came to Chile. Makes sense. You know, in the fifteen hundreds. So, um, but it was very basic. Actually, they brought you know very basic varieties for the purposes of, of uh, celebrating Holy Mass, and the varieties were not good enough. In the mid of the 19th century, very rich families that made money, especially in the mining business, uh, they spent summers, you know, in Europe, and they were kind of uh, a little bit uh, trying to copy, you know, the European style. So they started bringing, you know, best varieties like Cabernets, Merlots, Chardonnays, Sauvignon Blanc, and they brought, you know, very famous winemakers, French winemakers, and they built huge and beautiful wineries. So it was a kind of a weird beginning, you know. It was uh, because people wanted to be in fashion, and it was, and it was the, 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 the best way to start because they didn't care for profit. They were rich already. Uh. So they brought the best of best, and they didn't care about profit. And that was the beginning, and it was a good beginning. What was the first winery that you worked at? Uh, well, I left university in 1972, and I started working for Unduraga Winery. I, I had it written down. I didn't want to mispronounce it. Um, <laughs> I don't know. The, are they in the States? I don't know them. Uh, they used to be. Now they are. Uh, they, 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 they became small in this, in this, uh, in this country. So um, they, they had a position. But, but now they have gone really down. So after that, after 12 years, I, I was invited by San Pedro Winery, that's one of the biggest winery, you know, to work with them as a technical director, uh, both in viticulture and enology. And uh, they changed of ownership, and of course all the top management was, well, mm. fired. Mm. So I was 39, five kids at home, and I said, well, it's time to make a decision. Rather re-employ myself in another winery or start on my own. I had already moved around the world. I knew what the world was demanding. I knew where the good vineyards were in Chile. Mm. I knew that it was unfair to produce just a a basic, uh, interesting wine. I think that Chile deserved to have something much better than that. So I decided to start with Montes with another three friends, each one covering a different area, financial area, uh, marketing, engineering, and myself as a winemaker. Did you buy existing vineyards, or did you start planting your own, or a little bit of both? Or? Mike, we, we, we didn't have a penny. 
we, we started from scratch. So because I knew what the good grapes were, because I have been working for 15 years for other companies, I just went to the good vineyards and say, you know, I want to buy that corner. Mm. I want to buy this little bit here. And then we bought little bits and pieces and start, you know, uh, um, doing the wines mm. and bottling in a very basic way. Myself, even, I was bottling, you know, and labeling by hand the first you know, badges. No, seriously. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Crazy. And then we started selling wine and we found out that the market was prepared to receive Chilean wines of a better category at a more fair price. Mm. So I think that I'm proud to say that we showed a way to the Chilean wine industry. There was a much better way than producing a cheap, interesting wine. You're, the, market, the market at that time for Chile, America represented what percentage of your exports? Well, when I, when I started with Montes in the uh, 1987, roughly, uh, Chile was exporting as a whole only 3% of, it, of its production abroad. And the rest of all consumed... All consumed domestically. Okay. D- d- domestically, okay. yeah. So when we started, we, uh, of course, the, the American market was our first target. Mm. And the first shipping we ever did was to the U.S., to New York, actually. And then we started covering the rest of the countries. And, um, well, after 10 years in which our program was to do 30,000 cases. We were doing already 300,000 cases because, you know, the, the, the product was totally accepted. You know, the packaging, the price point, the style of wine and everything. And we were already in more than 50 countries around the world. Mm. So we were much more important, and we still are much more important in the international market than in, than in the domestic market. Mm. As we say, no one is a prophet in his own land. You have to go out to be believed. You know, in your own land, no one believes you. <laughs> so the grape varietals, you're exclusively French still to this, to this day. Absolutely. So you're doing Carmenere, Cabernet Sauvignon, Merlot, Syrah, Sauvignon Blanc. What Absolutely. am I missing? Yeah, but Chardonnay, uh, and we're starting with uh, a Southern France variety like Sanso. You're one, doing Sanso now. Uh, the one I have here. Uh, a little bit of Carignan, Mouvedre, Grenache. So, yes, those are basically the other varieties. And you had a tier structure for the wines. The, uh, like, I mean, everybody does. So there's sort of the, the top, top, top end. Talk about them. Because, I mean, I, so thanks for – you sent down a few bottles to my house, so I had them over the weekend. And they're, r- they're really – Big wines. They're really. um, I'm trying to think of words to describe them in in the proper way. Um, Lots of expression of fruit. Big. There's oak on a lot of the wines that you use. That you know that's integrated, but it's there. Is that Um, so? They're kind of to me like new world style with old world varietals. Um, yeah. Some of them kind of remind me of like when you get into the Bordeaux varietals of that. Because are you using Barrique? You're using French oak? We're using a lot of French oak. Yes, yeah. Barrique coming from, from France. And uh, well, my philosophy of winemaking is first of all totally natural. Although we use sulfur, of course, and we use a lot of the basic things. Uh, we, uh, we don't allow, I don't allow to put any sort of chemicals or, or bentonites or gelatins, whatever. It's just a couple of winters, you know, that stabilize the wine and it's ready to go to the bottle. So first of all, quite natural uh, second of all you know with low yields with the low yeah. yields you know you got a lot of concentration in the, in the, in, in the juice uh, when you got high yields of course uh, you know dilution comes uh, evident there and we were the first vineyard to plant hillsides 
No, I, I have been already. So everybody Ma- was planning on planes? Yeah, of course. You know, the, you know, the, the valley floor is the easy way to go. Correct. But you know. it's so funny because <clears throat> when you think... I mean, everywhere I've been in the wine world, when I mean, you're, to your point, you're right. It's the most natural place to be because it's easier to work those fields. That's where the water runs to, et cetera, et cetera. But then, like, when, it, when I think of, like, regions like Sud de France, Languedoc-Roussillon, which after World War II, after the Algeria became not, no, was no longer France because France used to get a lot of cheap wine from Algeria, um, the Languedoc-Roussillon became kind of their go-to area. And much of the vineyards were planted the same way. They were planted on valley floors. When mm-hmm. I go through parts of Italy, Alto Adige, they used to say, and now everyone wants the slopes. Everybody wants elevation. Yeah. It's just, so as a winemaker, explain that to the people listening, why that matters. Well, it matters because in the valley, uh, in, the, uh, in the slopes, you know, <clears throat> the soil is poorer. Yeah. You know, it has been affected by the uh, little bit of erosion right. through centuries, you know, with the rain and the wind. So the soil is rather poor. Number one. Secondly, if you have a rain, a heavy rainfall, the water drains out very right. quickly. So in that sort of soil, poor and less water, as I say, I handle the water because I take it you know, through pipelines, you know, drip irrigation. But in that, in that case, I play the music and the plant dances mm. because I, 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 I apply the water that I think the plant really needs, not more than that. Right. And hydric stress, it's funny. We find with winemaking that yeah. it, 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 it almost... In the early days of me thinking about, you know, winemaking and grape growing, which becomes wine, you'd think that well, you'd want happy, well-fed, well-watered, because that's what you do at home to your plants, right? That's what you do with other farms. But the truth yeah. is, with vines, it's almost the opposite. It's opposite. They like stress, and hydric stress is one. Temperature stress is one. Hydric stress is the, kind of the less water, the minimal amount of water, keeping those yields low, stressing those vines, that's what produces good wine. Why well, is that? Well, because, you know, the plant, you know, concentrates. Uh, you lose a lot of water in the plant. You lose a lot of water in the cluster. So you get a higher concentration of juice. The berries are smaller. The clusters are smaller, and then what you get is concentration. If you go to the valley floor and you get a fertile soil and you get the, all the water the plant uh, right. needs, right. you'll get huge clusters, yeah. beautiful to look at, right. <laughs> but, 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 but not nice to drink them because right. they are diluted. Right. diluted. So, so planting on the hillside is, is my passion. We have been doing that. We were the first one to do it in Chile. We were meant to be crazy, you know, clearing hillsides. Out of the first 10 hectares mm-hmm. that we cleared in our hillside, we took 300 full truckloads of stones and 300 full truckloads of trees and branches and, and all that. So it was a huge work and belief. We believed in what we were, we were doing. And then we planted the Cabernet, the Syrah, the Carmenere and all that. And we got what we needed. Uh, the plant, you know, uh, danced according to our music. So we put the, the, the amount of water that the plant needed exactly, not more than that. We got the clusters that we want, the size of the berries, and then we got what you, you tried at home. We got these wines with a certain amount of muscles. Yeah. You know, the tannins are velvety, are round, are approachable, uh, they're sensual in some way. Uh, uh, but, 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 but the wines are big, you know. You, you, you need a stack with them. You, you, you yeah, they're very, it's, it's, they're very yeah, it's funny because my palate's gone the other way in the last 10 years for whatever reason. I've just been drinking more feminine wines and less oak wines. And I got these wines and I'm like, wow, I haven't had one of these in a while because they're just really, uh, I mean, they're great. They're wonderful, but it's a totally different expression for me. But it's, 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 kind of, it's a lot of what's, what you see coming from the West Coast of America. Um, in some senses, it's what you see coming from parts of Bordeaux, maybe the left bank. Um, but they're, but they're, uh, we were sitting now talking before with Jenny. I mean, in terms of being pleasurable wines, they're 
really pleasurable wines. I mean, yeah, you're going to want fat. You're going to want, you're going to want yeah. blood in your mouth. You're going to want a big steak or, a, or something braised, but just really, really, really interesting style. So what percentage now of your exports are coming to America? America accounts for about 27% of our exports. We export 95% of our production okay. as a whole to 110 countries of the world, and the 5% remains locally. You know, in the best clubs, restaurants, hotels, we try to be at the very, very high, high uh, level. You will find our wines in the most weird places in the world, like the Maldives or the, uh, or the Mauritius Islands or Tahiti or, or whatever. Well, that's good. You can do sail calls there. That's, that's not a bad idea. You, yeah. And you're a pilot, so you can fly there. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and actually, we, we, uh, we pour our wines uh, in Japan Airways, Lufthansa, American Airways. So, so we have a big window to show our wines uh, throughout the world. So there was one of the sheets I was reading. You have this... What, explain this to me. I read this somewhere about you. You got, in 2009, the UK Masters of Wine Personality of the Year. I mean, A, that sounds epic. What does that mean? I mean it sounds great. So you're, you're this big personality. I mean, is it what it sounds like? Because I mean, in the wine world, we're not short of big personalities. Well, you know uh, that the, the in the UK, you have the Masters of Wine. Which is great, right? very... Isabelle Legeron. We were just talking about her before. She's A yeah. MW is the little thing, well, after, which is huge. Yeah. It's, it's like being it's a huge. Master Somme. Yeah. Slightly, without the service aspect and maybe a little more technically rigorous. Yeah. But it's as difficult as being, and there's only a hundred and some Masters it's of so Wine. It's so difficult. Right. So difficult. Right. And they are, you know, very specialized people, of course, I know of wines around the world, and uh, once the uh, year they decide which is the uh, prominent winemaker of the world or so, and uh, the decision in that year was that I was doing uh, special wines, that I was putting so much innovation in what I was doing. I was not doing the same thing that everyone was doing. Was doing. I was thinking out of the box. Uh, they liked the wines, the styles that we were producing. You know, they represented, you know, the Chilean typical terroir. So um, I was honored with this uh, uh, personality of the year or winemaker of the year. So what are you doing? Stay with that. What are you doing inside of the box? Tell me what you're doing. I'm really curious to hear <laughs> what, what out of the box is in Chile. Well, well actually, we could taste this. It may be a good reference point. We could take. Yeah, yeah, of course, of course, of course, of course. These glasses are clean. There's nothing been in them yet. Of course. Well, uh, first of all, we were the first one to plant hillsides, as I just told you. Which is remarkable when you think about it, because as you, as you said, like the families before you that had the money, it, you'd think if they traveled around, you'd, most of the planting in Europe is on hillsides. Absolutely. Right, no one's Absolutely. using the valley floor, and, yeah. and they'll, if you ask them why, they'll tell you <clears throat> what you just said. Yeah. Okay, so the hillsides is one. Yeah, and then we refreshed our viticulture. Uh, our viticulture was uh, a little bit, you know, uh, uh, let's call it tired. Because in the middle of the 19th century, these rich families brought cuttings, you know, of Cabernets, Merlots, and so on. And they were being reproduced over and over and over and over. So they got viruses and they got some diseases. Mm. And no one, you know, noticed that. And the wines were not performing very well. So I decided to make, you know, a joint venture with Maurice and Cooter, you know, a French nursery that is controlled by the uh, government, by the entire. And I brought totally new clones and new and some new varieties that were inexistent in Chile, like Cabernet Franc, Petit Verdot, and uh, Syrah. So, so that was thinking out of the box, you know, uh, planting uh, new new varieties and, and, and new clones. Now today, um, we, we are. I would define myself as a, as a discoverer of valleys. 
because I'm a pilot and I love flying, you know, from the air, <laughs> I discovered those lobes, expositions, little corners that are amazing to be planted. So we have been discovering lots of places that no one else ever planted. So, and, and we have been, uh, luckily enough, very successful in, in the places that we have, we have chosen. And, uh, and, and that was totally thinking out of the box, planting places that no one else ever did before. Now, you still love this. You still got this passion. I do. I do. Totally. I mean, it's like it's 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 contagious. So it, we're doing radio, so you can't see the gentleman's face, but you <laughs> could tell. I mean, I could see you like in your airplane, looking out the window, thinking, <laughs> "Holy shit, that'd be a great place to plant grapes." Let's go over. Where am I? What's the, where am I on the GPS? Yes, absolutely. Let me GPS get on my and go phone. down and go down and go down. How cool! And now the last thing that we're doing that is really amazing. We are doing a lot of of work in in in, in, in watering. You know, the water is a, is a big issue today. Huge. You know, the the world is getting dry. So uh, for the past seven years, we have been working a lot in how to do viticulture without any irrigation or very little irrigation. And we have reached amazing results. In one estate that we own in the company, we are saving enough water for the needs of 20,000 people for one full year. How'd you do it? Uh, short, shortened canopies. Okay. Yeah. So pruning, pruning. You know, pruning green yeah. pruning. Yeah. One. Second, you know, we cover the rows with oak, uh, not oak, but uh, wood chips, you know, that they act like a sponge. So when rain comes, you know, these uh, chips absorb the water and they very slowly give back to the roots. We're allowing the plant to explore more because when you irrigate the plants, they, the get, roots, they right. get lazy. Right, right. They get lazy. The water's at the top. I don't uh, go for it. Yep. And that's so, another thing we talked about. So, so we I'm, talked about, I'm forcing that. Right. Hydric stress by driving those roots further and further yeah. and further in search yeah. of water, you're developing yeah. more terroir, more mineral. And the last thing that it, that it hurts my pocket, it's, it's crop thinning, you know, taking a lot of fruit out of the plant. Less yield per acre. Yeah, less yield per acre. So the addition of all of this permits us to have zero irrigation in some plots of the, of the state, not all of them. And maybe one third that the historical figures that we used to use in terms of watering. It's a big number. And, and, and the addition of all that is the needs of 20,000 people for a full year. That's being sustainable. It's funny because, I mean, it's great you're doing it. It's wonderful. I, I travel a lot through France and I travel a lot through vineyards. And you know in France, in, in, in the AOCs, it, no, no, no irrigation. No. no one's allowed to do it, period. Um, no. What's the soil type? I've never been to Chile. What's the soil type where, in, in, I'm sure it varies, but yeah. talk about where you're planting, <laughs> what specific vineyards, what you're looking at. Do we have clay? Do we have lime? Do we have marl? Do we have schist? What do we have? Uh, we have basically clay. That's what I thought. Yeah, we have basically clay, so that that helps, you know, for the non-irrigated vineyards because clay retain much more water. Yeah, and certain uh, varietals like Merlot love clay. Yeah, but the important thing, Michael, is that in Chile we don't have any rain during spring and summer at all. It's a wonderful place. Of course, we have sun the whole spring and the whole summer because we have the humble current, you know, and the high pressure in the ocean. So that means that we irrigate very little compared to France. Because France, they have 700 millimeters of rainfall during summer. They have, you know, the Mexican Gulf current there. And they have a lot of rain in, in summertime. Yeah, in some places it can be terrible. I mean, Bordeaux, Burgundy, yeah. it can be terrible. I mean, we yeah, know Champagne is yeah. it's just famous for... So, so, so when they say we do, we do not irrigate, they say, oh, well, of course, you have 700 millimeters of rain falling. You don't need to. Yeah. Well, we do need because we have zero. So when you start working in dry farming, when you have zero irrigation, you have to be kind of a hero because you're, you're, you're risking your vineyard. Your vineyard can die. Mm. 
uh, if you if you go you know beyond the limits. Right, right. In the cellar, um, using any stainless. I mean, are you whites? Is it Sauvignon Blanc, seeing oak, or stainless? Uh, basically stainless. Uh, uh, we are basically stainless. So Sauvignon Blancs is only stainless steel. You know, we want to keep the fruit as strong as possible. Our Chardonnays go maybe 35% into oak barrels, where we ferment that, per- that, that proportion, and then the rest goes to stainless steel. And at the end, we do the combination, uh, yeah, the, the combination of both. Uh, and for red wines, we're diminishing the oak that used to be very strong, you know, following a little bit, you know, the trend of the Western California. Uh, California yeah. <laughs> and uh, now we are, we're using less and less oak. Of course, we need some. Uh, because there's some micro-oxygenation through the staves of the barrels. Are you doing any micro with... We are. Okay. We are doing, yeah, with, 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 a, with a proper tool. Right. Yeah, as soon as, 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 the, um, as, the, as the alcoholic fermentation is finished, we start a process of micro-oxygenation until malolactic starts. And in that period, what mm. we get mm. is we strengthen the... Uh, we, 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 we make the color strong, and we get the tannin soft. So right well, before mallow. Yeah, right from Malo, and then from Malo on, we allow the wines just to stand alone. Well, this is a sensor. This is just holy moly. I mean, red fruit, 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 fruit. It's a beautiful wine. Yeah. This is a 35% of uh, carbonic maceration, and the rest is yes to no normal traditional uh, winemaking. It's a sensor. It's a southern France variety. So carbonic, you're not crushing... It's yeah, you're not crushing grapes. Which is uh, why we're getting that fruit, that expression yeah. of fruit. I mean, that's yeah. one of the hallmarks of carbonic. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and, uh, and no oak here. No oak at all. So it's only fruit here. There's no oak. It's great. It's got these really, I don't want to say leathery, but yeah, maybe leathery, these really interesting tannic. And, and no. I, was trying, I was trying to figure out where that tannic structure was coming from. And I was actually, I hate to do this because that's always one of the, when you're blind tasting, as we talked about before we went on the mic, like that oak question is always like, Am I getting oak or am I not getting oak? And the, the, the safe answer is, unless it's really obvious, <clears throat> say no. But I'm not sure where I would have gone on this. So these tannins are just na- the nat- naturally occurring tannins from the grapes. Uh, absolutely. And they come from a valley very south in our country. Again, we were one of the first ones to recapture. These plants were, are very old. They were planted at the beginning of the past century. And uh, because there's a lot of rain there, uh, it's in the southern part of the country. And then the viticulture was totally forgotten, and they were paying miserable prices to put this in jug wines and very basic wines. This, this, this vines? This, the same vines. No way. And then we decided to explore, to do a good vinification out of these grapes. If you treat them with tender, loving care, what would happen? And this is what happens. It's bloody delicious. And I'm trying to think when I've had Carmenere's in and of by itself before. Is anybody doing, I know you're not, but is anybody in Chile doing non-French varietals? Has anybody planted Sangiovese or Nebbiolo? Or? There is some. There is some. I got a little bit of Riesling uh, by the coast where the cold temperature is. Uh, there is tiny bits of uh, Nebbiolo's. A uh, tiny bit of Sangiovese that is not performing very well. Mm. Sangiovese is a very strong variety, yeah. and you need really poor soils and chist, you know, poor, poor soils to achieve that. And, um, but I would say the rest is uh, 99% French varieties, mainly Bordeaux, Burgundy, and now quite trendy southern France, like Carignan, Mouvedre, Grenache, Cinzo. Yeah, well, there's, I mean... We've seen those, those again, that region. Long enough, we've seen all those, those varietals have become really, really popular. How do you see you? I know you go back and forth a lot. How do you see the wine scene in America today? I'm just curious to get your take as someone that's flying up from the southern hemisphere. I mean, do I, and I, I shouldn't even say America. Let me just say New York, because the New York wine scene is pretty unique. But um, what, 
I've been here since 1982, and I'd say in the last 15 years, yeah, 15, 16 years, we've really become like a wine capital in this city. Like when you walk around, when you go to when you see, when you see wine lists at restaurants, when you go to retail stores, I used to come back from Europe and say, God, you know, I would drink these great wines in Paris, I would drink these great wines in in, in Italy, and I'd come back and you couldn't find them on the shelves; they weren't existed. And now um, I'm they are all. Got, now I've got friends that are coming here from Paris saying, How the hell did you get that? <laughs> I can't get this in Paris for my wine bar because so many people <clears> want to. <throat> I mean, just as a uh, question off of topic, I suppose in a way, but not so much. What do you think of the wine scene in New York today? Because it's crazy. Well, it is the capital, of course, of of, uh, of wine. Yeah. Well, you have the influence of Europe. You're, you're just in front of Europe. Yeah. Uh, we're far away from Europe. And um, uh, when I started, you know, long ago, I started already 40 years ago in winemaking. You know, to sell a bottle of wine in New York was really tough. Uh, to, to to get an appointment was 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 tough, and uh, and people were not too much interested. They were in heavy alcohols or or very basic. You, know, you can remember the Chablis or, or those uh, very. They were just combination of the remaining of the tanks. Uh, no no uh, real uh, knowledge about the varieties and all of that. And I've seen a sophistication in the New Yorkers in in, in the way they drink and the amount they drink. When I started, you know, the average, average per capita was about three or four liters. I'm afraid today you are close to 12. No, it's great. We are. We're, we're one of the only places on the planet, I think, where we're actually grow, our consumption is growing. Yeah. All over Europe is going down. I, you know, quick question. What's, what's going to be next for you? What are you stoked about in terms of a project with your winery? Is there something on the rise and a new variety you're playing with, a new blend, a new piece of equipment? Uh, well, we are always looking. A new parcel that you've flown over. I, I, I think that the best for me is new, it's new terroirs. Okay. Uh, because we have been exploring already so many varietals. Now, pieces of equipment, you know, brings you a little bit more of technology, mm -hmm. which, which is okay, but it's not, it doesn't change your life. This is, but, this is extraordinary. But when you find the correct place to plant a vineyard, that's bingo. That's, that's where you really uh, hit the spot. Aurelia Montes has been my guest. You can find his wines throughout the United States, M-O-N-T-E-S. We're drinking this Carmenere. This is so... Carmenere, sorry. I'm, I'm reading a note and drinking a wine. So delicious. Uh, the wines you sent me are great, big, vivacious, like you. These big personality wines. Well, thank they're just, you. They're, they're <laughs> just this big smile. Keep up the great work. You obviously love what you're doing. Thanks so thank much you. for coming in. Glad we could get you in today. Well, it's been a real pleasure to... My to, pleasure, to, my to, pleasure, my pleasure. And, thank and, you, sir. And, and, and I realize that your knowledge in wine is amazing. No, I just drink and drink <laughs> and, and hang out with people like you that know what they're talking about. Thank well, you, sir. Thank you so much. So stay tuned again next week. I've got Virgilio Martinez in a pre-tape his Restaurant Central. It's great. He's cool. It's a full-hour show. All about Lima, Peru, and the amazing, I mean, your neighbors, the amazing scene that's going on down there. Stay tuned for that, and I'll see you in two weeks live. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.